2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up, Sally Hayden. The journalist, photographer and author discusses her new book, which shines a spotlight on the perilous journeys faced by refugees in North Africa and across the world. Sally Hayden is Africa correspondent for the Irish Times. Her work as a journalist and photographer has seen her report from locations including Nigeria, Iraq, Syria, Sierra Leone and more often focusing on the experiences of those swept up in migration, conflict and humanitarian crisis. Her first book, the recently published My Fourth Time We Drowned, Seeking Refuge on the World's Deadliest Migration Route, continues that work. The book explores not only the dangerous journeys undertaken by those seeking refuge in Europe, but also investigates how politics, NGOs and organisations such as the United Nations can be a problematic part of the bigger picture. Hosting today's discussion is the economist and broadcaster Linda Yu here's Linda with more.
3: Welcome, Sally. Your book is focused on the refugee and migrant crisis in Africa and across the Mediterranean. But we're talking to you at a moment when more than 4 million refugees from the Ukraine have crossed borders into neighboring European countries. What have you made of Europe's response to the Ukraine crisis?
0: I think I'm in a the- The important thing to say first is that what's happening in Ukraine is horrific and it's good that that refugees from there are being welcomed into Europe and it's been really heartening to see the kind of responses to them. I think it's also been very shocking for many of us who have been working on documenting what happens to refugees who try to get into Europe in the sense that there hasn't been this kind of welcome for people who are trying to enter from any of the other borders essentially I know that some people that that some journalists that I know that report on it have actually said it's given them kind of a glimmer of hope they're thinking maybe a more empathetic refugee policy is possible but at the same stage, you know, what we've been seeing for years now is like really horrific, a, a pretty horrific response in terms of human rights on Europe's other borders. And so, yeah, it's it's, it's been strange to witness. Well, let's get to your area,
3: um, which is this um, book that you've written. Can I just ask you, how did you first become interested in telling these stories from the refugee crisis gosh now it's it's um from around 2015 a few years before that and certainly still ongoing
0: yeah i mean i think that there were there were like refugees and asylum seekers trying to reach Europe a long time before 2015 but as we all know it kind of came to much broader consciousness in 2015, the year of the so-called European migrant crisis. And um, at the time, I was a staff journalist for Vice News based in London. So we saw news reports where David Cameron, I think, used the term swarms of migrants. He said "There's swarms of migrants who are trying to reach the UK from Calais in France. And my editor and me had a conversation and basically went, what does that mean? Like, we don't understand who are they like where did they come from what like swarms how many does swarms mean like we you know that didn't really make sense as a statement and so my editor then at Upright actually said why don't you just go to Calais and try and meet people and see what's going on and so I went out I had reported like a little bit on migration just because I did daily news you know so we'd report on when there was a big shipwreck and things like that but um I went out and I had actually been given like a thousand business cards from my work, which I hadn't, I did a lot of desk reporting, so I hadn't had so much chance to use them all. And I went out to Calais and I realized that like this is a much broader, You know there's many many reasons why people would try and reach europe would try and reach the uk and there's also many different situations that they're fleeing from um and it's not you can't use one term to describe everybody you know i mean that's what we do but it doesn't really show you the actual reality of what's happening and i actually went out and started handing out business cards just like anyone i spoke to i'd say take my business card get in touch if you you know, have something that you think we should be reporting. Or if you get to the UK and want to meet up, like, you know, just stay in touch. And a lot of them did stay in touch. And that was kind of my first I I just started making contacts with like a lot of people who, you know, would be considered as refugees, who started telling me what was happening in their countries, also a lot about the details of making this type of journey and the, you know, the troubles that they faced, even trying to fit into Europe afterwards. Um, And that, yeah, that kind of started me on this path of reporting on this. We're
3: going to hopefully cover all of that in our time, including you quote um, some of the messages that they had sent to you throughout the book. So it's it's um, it was such a. It was such a yeah I mean, very worrying read I have to say.
0: <laughs> I mean that so that was a different situation. The question of how I started reporting mm-hmm. on migration that was 2015, but the book begins in 2018, yeah. Um, and that's when I get a message from someone who was in a Libyan migrant detention centre. So I hadn't reported on Libya until that mm-hmm. point, um, and that and those messages quoted in the book are messages coming from detention centres in Libya. Um, Yeah, which is a bit different to what was happening in Calais.
3: Actually, I want to come to that story of the first person who got in touch with you in a moment. But before that, just um, you've already begun to describe it. But just tell me a bit about how you conducted the research for this book and actually some of the challenges you faced in trying to get to see um, the refugee camps and to meet the people.
0: Yeah, I mean, so first, to be clear, like, they're not refugee camps. So the book looks at Libyan detention centres, which are effectively prisons where people are locked up indefinitely without legal recourse. And, you know, using the word camps makes it sound nicer than it is. It's not. It's a detention centre. Like, Pope Francis has compared them to concentration camps. People can be locked up, hundreds of people in one hall without food, without water, without medical care. So yeah, it's they're really not camps and I wouldn't even call them re- refugee camps because refugee implies that they're being given some sort of protection, which they're not. Uh, the book focuses on what is happening to the roughly 90,000 people now who have tried to cross the central Mediterranean Sea to reach Italy or Malta and have been intercepted through EU policy effectively and forced back into detention centers in Libya. And so this was a result of, you know, Pretty much of what we call the European migrant crisis. Um, and it's funny to think about it now because in 2015, 1.3 million people claimed asylum across Europe in the whole year. And like you said, 4 million Ukrainians have already left Ukraine. So when you even compare the size of those things, you know, what, what sparked all of this backlash against refugees actually wasn't so sizable in comparison to what they're facing now. But The reaction to the migrant crisis was that a lot of more kind of far right uh, political parties started gaining power and figures. And there was kind of a reaction among the EU, like various, you know, various uh, aspects of the EU where they decided that they needed to kind of stop people arriving into Europe. And so one uh, one of the initiatives that was taken was to support the Libyan Coast Guard, so Under international law, European boats can't return people to a country where their lives would be in danger. And so instead of European vessels being able to return people to Libya, because if European vessels rescue boats of refugees, they pretty much have to take them to Europe. So the way to get around that was to support the Libyan Coast Guard by providing them with equipment, with training and also doing surveillance so the EU still flies you know, helicopters, planes, drones to spot refugee boats. But they give that information to the Libyan Coast Guard since 2017. And the Libyan Coast Guard then can legally return refugees to Libya. So I'm sure like many people still don't know about this. Since 2017, 90,000 people, men, women and children have been caught at sea and returned into indefinite detention in Libya for for basically just trying to reach Europe. Mm.
3: As you document in your book, uh, refugees who contacted you—they um, wanted to tell their stories, but you also write about it was hard for them to tell you some parts of the story, wasn't it? Safety-wise, and perhaps you wrote sometimes they feel shames. You know, the just the most of them wanted to to tell you, but getting the story, you know, from them—that in and of itself was, you know, very challenging, wasn't it?
0: Well, so the the book is based on pretty much hundreds of people that i was in touch with who were held across detention centers and so they were using hidden phones to send the messages and there was a very real risk that if the information if their you know my source was made public or was um, released that they would actually like they could literally be tortured like so they were inside the detention center they were very much in real danger at that time and so actually people did want to talk like a lot of i say in the book like A lot of this ended up just kind of almost as a friendship, like just exchanging conversation. Because if you think about it, you have people who literally, some of them hadn't left a hole in a year, you know, they hadn't seen sunlight in a year. They didn't know what was going on. They wanted to know what was happening outside that detention center. And so it wasn't so hard to get information from people, but there was, I mean, actually, actually people would be more open with me than they would be with their family for example because they don't want their family to know how much they're suffering whereas like for me I was kind of an impartial person who didn't necessarily know their relatives or didn't um you know have I I was kind of separate so they were more willing to tell me how they were feeling what was happening what the conditions were like.
3: I want to come back to your chapter um, about the importance of the SIM card, but before we do that, I just want to spend a moment on the title of your book. So you titled it "My Fourth Time We Drowned," and it's extremely evocative. Tell me about the Somali refugee that you were quoting in as the title of your book, and then crucially, what happened on their fifth attempt?
0: Yeah, the quote comes from something not a Somali. A young Somali guy told me that he had tried to cross the sea three times, all those times he had been intercepted. The fourth time, he says, we drowned, he was with family members and they actually died in that attempt. And the fifth time, he personally made it to safety. But I think for me, that quote is quite powerful. I mean, part of me was surprised that other people felt that because they didn't know the whole context. But like for me, that quote was powerful because what happens to refugees when they try to make this journey, it becomes like a communal effort. You know, all of your background, all of your personal identity gets stripped when you're stuck in this situation where you're basically treated as cargo. You know, you get locked up in warehouses, smugglers just move you around like your cargo, you get locked up in detention, and nothing really from your previous life matters anymore. And so it becomes like a very communal effort to try and survive this situation. And so... Actually, the book even details like what happens to people who reach Europe. And like that young man, I mean, they can feel that part of them is dead because the people who were with them will like all, everyone that I know who has reached Europe. They have multiple people who have died trying to make that journey. And so they may have survived. But the feeling is like part of them is dead. You know, it's not that they are just celebrating now. Um, yes, yeah, so that's what the title meant.
3: Tell me about the road of death. From Sudan to Italy. So what might this journey for a refugee look like? You've already begun to describe it. Why would they brave that particular route? And it was really striking in the book how expensive um, that it would cost.
0: Yes, that was definitely what uh, one guy who I interviewed for the book, he called this the road of death, where it tends to be the people who are coming from what would be termed as refugee-producing countries. So either they're escaping war in maybe Somalia, Darfur and Sudan, um, South Sudan, or dictatorships like in Eritrea. And they all kind of meet together in Sudan. And in Sudan, in Khartoum, you can find a smuggler. And so it tended to be in Khartoum that they would make deals with smugglers or in uh, close by in Omdurman. And basically what the smugglers do is they offer you is kind of like go now, pay later scheme. So you don't pay anything to set off on the journey. But people know that the journey is going to be incredibly dangerous. But the smuggler will say, especially like in 20, around 2017, 2016, they'll say you'll pay maybe $5,000 or it may probably $2,000, but you'll be in Europe in three weeks or one month. And so people agreed to do this and they set off, they drive across the Sahara Desert, which is incredibly dangerous. There's like not enough water, people die. They just, they're in hillocks jeeps generally. They just are sitting, sitting at the back. And if someone dies, which many people described to me happening, they just throw the body off the jeep and keep driving. When they get to Libya, then at that point, they get locked in a warehouse. And so that's when the amount of money that they've been told they will pay goes up. So generally, if they were told they'd pay two grand, maybe they'd be told now it's going to be $5,000. And from that point, they're then told, it depended on the smuggler slightly, but generally, like every day, they'd be lined up, told to call their family, told to tell their family they have to pay $5,000. I mean some people i interviewed they described like the account details were like on the wall so they could call them out they were given like one minute to talk to their family members and if they didn't pay in a certain amount of time then they began to be tortured or beaten so or denied denied food even so yeah so if you paid quickly initially if you paid quickly then you could move on and potentially try and cross the sea but if you didn't pay quickly that's when torture started Most people I interviewed, they said they stayed there for around one year with the smugglers. So it was like not a fast process. And what happened was because the EU started supporting the Libyan Coast Guard in 2017, they're stopping so many people arriving in Libya, which meant that the smugglers were quite desperate to keep making money out of the people who were under their control. So they would have had like thousands of people across various compounds. And what happened was when you paid your $5,000, you would then be sold to another smuggler and made to pay again. So some people I interviewed, they paid this like two, three, four times. Um, so it, it went from being what uh, one one researcher on this calls that gone from the monetization of travel to the monetization of captivity, basically. And one guy I interview in the book, he literally... Uh, was gambled away by a smuggler. So the smugglers weren't always in Libya. Sometimes they were off in Dubai. And his smuggler loved gambling and literally gambled away, like a few hundred of them, to another smuggler.
3: Wow. You write later in the book about Rwanda. And Rwanda, sort of given how treacherous this course is and what you've described as a use policy. So just tell us a little bit about um, what's happening um, with the Rwanda position in all of this.
0: Yeah, so Rwanda isn't on the route at all and there wouldn't be people leaving Rwanda to try to get to Europe, at least not that I've come across going through Libya. But what happened was there's a EU evacuation scheme and the EU... Oh, sorry, a UN evacuation scheme. And so this is happening all over the world. It's kind of resettlement and rich countries can step forward and offer spaces for refugees. And there really aren't enough spaces offered. So before Coronavirus Day, UN was evacuating about 2000 people a year, which was much less than the number who needed it, even much less than the numbers who were detained. But because they can't do a proper full, you know, the, the countries that offer spaces, they make a lot of requirements in terms of the interviews and things that have to be carried out before someone can be moved there. So UN first had tra- a transit country, it's basically in Niger, and then that became full because they moved people there that then weren't being offered spaces in other countries. So they needed another place they could move them to from Libya, and it became Rwanda. So I went to Rwanda quite a few of my sources got evacuated after literally years with smugglers and then in detention centres they were evacuated to Rwanda and so I went there to meet them and yeah, it's, I mean that's the role that it's playing, it's basically opted to take people but it's a tiny, tiny minority and then even then they get moved to Rwanda they wait again, you know indefinitely sometimes just to find out can they be evacuated to a safe country, so it's a very long process. Mm. So I did want to come
3: to um, this chapter of your book, which is titled, The SIM Card Is Our Life. So there's so many stories um, in your book that we won't have time to go through them all. But tell me the story of the first person who contacted you. And you'd already begun to say how vital the SIM card is for him and for really the others
0: yeah I mean that's how the book opens At the prologue was called "This sim card is our life because that's what one of the refugees who first contacted me said so it was August 2018 that's when I got this message basically from on Facebook from someone saying um hi sister Sally we need your help uh we're under bad condition in Libya prison if you have time I'll tell you all this story and so I I mean Sometimes I get these messages as a journalist, you always kind of say, I can't help because you know, you don't want to give, make false promises. But I said, I can't help, but of course, I'll listen if you want to tell me what's going on. And so this guy said there were hundreds of them. They had been locked in a detention center for months. A war had just broken out around them and the guards who had, who had locked them inside basically had fled And so they had been left there. They had no food, no water. There were children. There were pregnant women. They were desperate. They didn't know. He sent me photos of like, you know, people patrolling, like militias patrolling outside. And they were just desperate for help. And so I obviously was a bit skeptical. (laughs) Like I was like, how could this be real? Why are they contacting me? How do they have a phone? But I contacted, I knew a Libyan journalist who was in Tripoli at the time. And I said... I mean, it has a word just broken out, and he said yes, and I said, would it make sense that there are like 500 refugees in this area locked in some sort of prison, and he said yes, and then I said, um, basically at that point, I was like, okay, well, maybe this is real, so I started contacting NGOs, the UN, anyone that I could think of asking could they help like do they have more information the guy who had contacted me first I asked him for a GPS location uh selfies you know anything I could think of that would prove that they were where they said they were um even I think I asked for his family members contacts because I wanted to call them and just kind of confirm and yeah it turned out that this was totally real and uh from that point then That was the first group I thought it was an isolated incident, basically. But like I said, it turned out that they had pretty much all tried to cross the Mediterranean Sea and been intercepted because of European policy and been locked up in this detention center where they ended up in this situation. But from that point, I started actually posting the messages on Twitter because I was, you know, anonymously, but I was like trying to get them help. And everyone I contacted said they couldn't help them. And then... I started getting contacted by people in other detention centers. So it turned out that this wasn't isolated, that there were like many. I mean, at one point there were 26 like government affiliated detention centers, but that were being run by militias where people were locked up. So that was the basis of the book that I then became the contact person for like refugees that were detained all over Libya. And yeah, I just wanted to document what was happening to them. Yeah, you describe in the book, you know,
3: in it was quite extraordinary how they were hiding the phones, the hiding the SIM card. You, you wrote about hiding it in their cheeks. They were taking them out at night and um, using wires to find the one electric outlet they had to power the phones. I mean, just, you know, it's, that that um, was a great way to start the book, Sally. just really gave us a sense of, um, you know, of the of the extraordinary measures that people were taking. You mentioned already a bit on the UN. Um, I wanted to take you to another refugee that you quoted who had written to you and said, the UN can't do anything. I have lost hope from the UN and from anyone. So tell me about your reporting of the UN agencies responsible for refugees.
0: I had actually reported, so I didn't know this when I received this first message, I wasn't aware, but the reason that they contacted me was actually because of my reporting previously in Sudan. That meant that my name was quite well known among refugees. So one of the guys who was in this detention center, his brother had recommended my name. And that reporting in Sudan had ended up focusing on UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. So I went to Sudan 2017. I was actually initially looking at EU funding and how that was being used to stop migration and where it was being spent. But all the refugees that I spoke to, they were like, no, don't report on this, report on how the UN is corrupt. And so I, of course, like for me, I was like, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make sense. I had taught, especially the UN refugee agency, you know, in my head, it was like really doing amazing work. I had always admired them a lot. And um they said, no, what is happening? So there's this legal resettlement, you know, what what people say, the legal routes. And they were saying that actually UNHCR uh, like UN is in charge of that process in Sudan. And they were saying that UNHCR staff were involved in taking bribes of up to like tens of thousands of dollars from refugees to be considered for this program. And so... I uh, looked into this for like 10 months because I didn't want to publish anything quickly because I was like, this really seems very strange to me. And I actually ended up interviewing both a lot of refugees, but also former UNHCR staff who said, yes, this has been a problem. And I ended up publishing the investigation in May 2018. And two days later, UNHCR in Sudan suspended the resettlement program, saying that they were carrying out an anti-fraud investigation. And that basically, again, punished vulnerable people, really, because then there was no resettlement, which, you know, they desperately needed. And they did eventually find one staff member guilty of uh, soliciting bribes and abusing power. Though um, refugees there, they say that the situation was bigger than that and that it's ongoing. So Sudan, for people that don't understand the geography, Sudan is kind of like the transit country for people who are trying to get to Europe from East Africa and the Horn of Africa. And they're going then to Libya. And so refugees in Sudan, they would say this process is corrupt. So we can't get a legal route to safety, you know, unless we have huge amounts of money. So that's why we take this illegal route, even though you said you know, the MIT pay traffickers is is huge. At the same stage, they were saying it's cheaper than trying to go through the so-called legal routes. So, yeah, that was my first reporting on UNHCR. And then in Libya as well, I mean, I tried to document it. Basically, I was just looking at the disconnect between what was being said by them publicly and what was being said by refugees in detention centres and just trying to make sure that the... You know, that the voices of the refugees were also being heard in this because a lot of the time in, for example, official meetings with politicians, all of this, you'll have UN staff representing the viewpoint of refugees. But in Libya, there's a big disconnect between the refugees and the UN staff because... You know, if you have people in detention centres, for example, UNHCR staff have to call up before they turn up to a detention centre. Then the refugees know if they say certain things, they can be tortured by the Libyan guards. It's not UNHCR that runs the centres. It's um, Libyan militias, effectively. And so, you know, again, you have a disconnect because then what's, what's being heard is what UNHCR may say instead of what the refugees are saying and yeah for me it became very clear that those weren't the same things
3: you mentioned there the um the EU and um you had actually also written about um, really the the impact of Um, the arrivals um, of refugees from um, these countries that you are covering into Europe. And so this, you know, around 2015, we said around 2016. So just talk through a bit about your reporting on the EU funds and just say a bit more about um, what you described as the so-called European refugee crisis, which then... You know, you do focus on in the book as well. And and, and also just um, tell me if, and remind me, if I forget to ask, when you actually went to a port and you were trying to, um, to document um, what was happening with um, uh, some of the arrivals into Italy.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean... Even this term, like the European refugee or migrant crisis, that's something that a lot of people who work on this sort of area dispute, because it's really a crisis for the refugees, isn't it? And we had the EU in 2019 came out and said the migrant crisis is over two months ahead of elections when they were worried that the far right was going to gain ground, basically. but. I think like from my book, you can see the crisis isn't over, it's just been pushed into a situation where refugees aren't being listened to or where people are suffering, but it's not been documented, they're not being registered. Like, for example, the number of deaths happening in Libyan detention centres is not being counted by anyone. And, and there are a lot of them. Yes. Yeah, so no, I think you described it in both the book and just earlier as the
3: so-called European refugee crisis. So it's, you know, just to get a sense of, especially now as we're looking at the Ukraine, just to get a sense of your reporting on the, UN, um, on the, the EU, EU funds and, you know, and the implications of, you know, of all of that, the politics and the funding and, you know, then your own trip.
0: So, so, like I said, the 2015, that kind of led to a lot of repercussions in terms of European migration policy and in terms of how that has hardened. And one of the things that resulted was, um, it's called the EU Trust Fund for Africa. So, it's a multi-billion euro pot of money that's being spent, I think, still over 26 uh, African countries. And it basically kind of declares them as being in crisis. So there isn't the same oversight in terms of this spending as there is on other EU spending. And the money is effectively being paid to try and stop migration through like a huge range of means. Um, So the Libyan Coast Guard money is coming out of that. That's tens of millions of euro. And then, you know, there's, there's various other, there's a lot of other spending as well. Even the UN is receiving a lot of money through that. And then... Yeah, I think there are a lot of allegations in terms of that money, whether it's actually propping up kind of, in Libya, militias, I mean, repressive governments in other places, increasing securitization, increasing abuses, because um, it's kind of more focused on hardening borders rather than actually, you know, improving things for the people who need it, particularly in some countries. And in Libya, I mean, that's what refugees who were locked in detention would say like if all this money is being spent why are we not you know they they would eat for example one piece of bread a day or like one one small bowl of like pasta but with nothing on it and so refugees who I interviewed they lost like 30 some of them 25 30 kilos in detention like they were literally starving like people died of pretty much starvation and yeah like you have this money being spent but then I don't know people are suffering so (laughs) I mean it's a big I go into it a lot more in the book Mm -hmm. like you're saying but that's kind of like a general overview Mm -hmm. Um, I'm into sorry you wanted to ask me in terms of a port.
3: yeah yeah so you write um, one of the chapters about some of the you know you I mean I should say throughout the book you know you document um, a lot of the challenges that you had you were receiving threats um, but you did actually go to a port, didn't you? Because you went to many places. But I thought that story where you then became Persona Non grata. Um, so just tell us that story.
0: I went on a, a refugee boat, which was, I think it was December 2019 to New Year 2020. And um, it was run by CI, a charity called CI from Germany. And... Yeah, I, I mean, I it, uh, reporting this book. There were many things that ended up happening, which I did not anticipate, and if I had tried to. You know, write it. My like, obviously, it's nonfiction, so you have to roll with what you find. But if I had anticipated things, they wouldn't have necessarily been how things developed. And this was one example that we went on this rescue ship. I assumed that we were going to rescue people from detention centers, potentially even people that I had been in touch with, or you know, Eritreans, uh, Sudanese people, Somalis, and instead we ended up rescuing Libyans. Um, thirty five or sorry 32 Libyans came on board and that was really interesting to me cuz then i was i was asking like why are you guys fleeing and they said you know their country is being ruled by militias and it comes back to that eu funding actually like they said it had become unlivable like it wasn't safe to be there it was so dangerous and yeah it was just militia rule it's not like you know a, a safe place to be and for me, that led back to the question, well, isn't this EU funding kind of propping up those militias? Is it? Is there a potential that it's actually making the country unlivable now, even for Libyans? Yeah, in terms of uh, the allegations that I was then under, I don't know if I should explain it properly here, or it's better that people read the book, to be honest, because it's kind of a legal issue. But yeah, I did then I, I was put under un- investigation for being a human smuggler, essentially. And that lasted one year and then was dropped.
3: I want to ask you um, a little bit. I mean, there are so many stories that are so poignant in your book. But if you described, um, you've already described, you know, quite a bit of it, but... I was fascinated to just to learn that the refugees in these detention centers, they would, uh, you know, they would pair up because married couples had, you know, they were uh, higher up in terms of being resettled. So just kind of, you know, say a bit more about, you know, what you observed these um, um, refugees doing to try and, you know, survive and and, um, and make it out.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I guess this book... I wanted to, I just wanted to document actually humanity and how humanity survives in these type of horrific situations. And, you know, the fact that anyone can survive living like this for years, like literally years to me is incredible. And this was one of the things that I did hear about happening uh, a good bit was that because there'd there'd be less women basically than men, but married couples, so either women were prioritized women and children or married couples as well. There were, and I heard this from like many people, that's why it's documented. There were kind of basically women either doing doing favors almost. So they'd like enter into relationships with men that weren't real and be evacuated with them. And actually, like from what I heard, a lot of those couples stayed together. So, you know, it started, I quote someone, he says it started as a game and then they had a baby. Like it started that it was kind of like one person doing the other one a favor or you know even just because everybody was kind of trying to help each other in a way and that's what really like reporting this I was amazed I think that that people even in the toughest circumstances they you know they try and do what they can to help each other I'm not saying it's right or wrong but like that's what I that's what I heard about anyway and um yeah, you had these couples that like sometimes they wouldn't even have met in person. They'd write each other letters from different cells in detention centers or from different halls. Then they'd agree that they'd be evacuated together and then they'd end up in a relationship and some of them are, you know, like pretty happy and in love now, which is kind of crazy. So you've discussed around East Africa and some of the uh, the
3: routes that people take. Just say a bit about the refugees from West Africa.
0: Yeah, the people coming from West Africa, generally they wouldn't be considered refugees in a legal sense. They'd be more what's termed economic migrants. They're people who have left looking for opportunity or they fled from poverty or, or things like that. Um, but that was one of the interesting things for me. I went to Sierra Leone and I met one guy who, had, who was from Sierra Leone who had been messaging me from inside detention. They don't have the opportunity to be legally evacuated and so... A lot of them end up when they get locked in detention, their only way out is to be returned to their home country through an EU funded UN scheme. And so he got returned. But I ended up reporting in Sierra Leone a lot. And, you know, for me, that challenged the idea of the distinction between refugees and economic migrants, because, for example, in Sierra Leone, your life expectancy is around 25 years less than it would be in Europe. Um, I think it's around one in 10 children die before they turn five. It's one of the worst, if not the worst country to give birth as a woman, you're very likely to die. And so there are these threats to your life that are related to poverty that are but are still kind of, you know, I was even there during um, a big coronavirus outbreak, and there were no ventilators functioning in the country. So like, if you needed a ventilator, you just died. So that's, when you, when you look at it like that, it's not so clear-cut that these are just people who want a job. You know, it's like they, there is actually an active threat to your life if you're in a very, very poor country.
3: One of the things that was, there are many striking things about your book, but one of the striking things is that um, you write that 87% of the world's refugees are sheltered in developing countries. And you view migration as one of the greatest challenges to humanity of the 21st century. So what would you like to see done about this crisis, this challenge?
0: I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say that I see migration as one of the greatest challenges. It's more the response to it. I think that it's really a test of people's humanity because we're really seeing the worst of, you know, our humanity as people who are living in the rich world. What is happening? For me, I'm a journalist. You know, I don't have all the answers, but I want people to know the consequences of Uh, of our policies. And and I feel like we're all complicit in this, really, because so many efforts are being made to shut out people and, and literally incarcerate them and sometimes sentencing them to death effectively. And I think that all Europeans should be aware of this. I mean, I know there's been Brexit. I think British people should also be aware of it. Even the British have been involved in training the Libyan Coast Guard as well. So it isn't a separate issue. And yeah, I I mean, I talk about it in the book. We have all this kind of pieces being written saying things like, how do we make more women have babies in the West? Because we have declining populations. But actually, it's like Africa is treated as a oversize in those sort of conversations. And you have huge numbers of people who are looking for opportunities, but have been shut out from those opportunities. And, you know, people now they're saying, well... We should care more about Ukrainians, for example, because we have more of a history with Ukraine. But actually, a lot of African countries were former colonies of British, either Britain or European countries. And they've long been exploited by British and European countries. Yeah, I think that there's a bigger responsibility there that's, that's somehow being dodged.
3: You write that Samuel uh, went to Canada. You also write about, about a million going to Sweden at SE. Uh, went to italy and and others so you mentioned it's at the very start um what is the process like for those who make it to europe or to um, canada and elsewhere and do you know how they're doing now
0: yeah there are two ways that people that I've been in touch with, they've made it either that they cross the sea. So they finally, they keep trying and eventually they make it across the sea to Italy or to Malta, or else they get resettled through the UN, which, um, like I said, that's a small number, but there is a number that, that get taken like that. And yeah, they're the lucky few, to be honest. And I think they all struggle. I mean, I document that in the book as well, like that I went around Europe meeting former libya detainees who pretty much all have problems sleeping like they don't sleep at night they end up just pacing around at night they like either cut contact with people in libya or they yeah they just they struggle in various ways and at the same stage like some of them have jobs now they can speak fluent you know swedish or norwegian or they're learning languages they're like integrating in various ways some are part of part of um sports clubs so they Yeah, but it's tricky. And I met two guys in Stockholm, I describe it in the book, who were held in a detention center called Zintan. One of them lost 25 kilos there, one of them lost 30 kilos there. They thought they were going to die, they were completely emaciated. And um, we met for lunch and it was very strange because they were describing how it had been and I was messaging them when they were in this detention centre. They were describing how it was to starve there and then we're sitting in Sweden and we're in this restaurant with like a lot of food in front of us. They were telling me, you know, if this was a Libyan detention centre, this is how the mattresses would be lined up, this is how many people would be be fit in here. And they they then said one of them picked up a glass of water and said, you know, actually, I think actually one of them got a bit upset. And I said, we don't have to talk about this. You know, it's fine. And he said, no, I want to talk about this. And then he picked up a glass of water and said something like the people here, they just they don't see past this glass. He tried to use it as an example. And he was like, they don't understand what's happening to to us, and, and because of that, we can't speak about it. We don't. You know, it just disturbs people for them to speak. Another guy said uh, he had to, tried to describe it to someone and they said, wow, this is like a movie. And he was like, no, this is the reality for like tens of thousands of people who are still going through this. So they really have like this very difficult time trying to reconcile even in Sweden refugees kept saying we can't believe how well they treat their dogs here like they're so nice to their animals and yet, you know Africans are suffering this much on the borders so yeah it's it's very difficult and I don't know the answers I've been trying to learn a bit more about trauma and how it affects people and I hope that that they'll all do well and continue to do well but I know that it's difficult.
3: Well, you're right that some um, have been returnees back to uh, West Africa. There's a story you tell in the book about one of them.
0: Yeah, about Joseph. And he, yeah, exactly. Like I was saying, I went to visit him there. And it's difficult. I mean, he actually just wants to leave again. <laughs> like he's looking for opportunities. He tried to get a job. He's had various problems. I mean, I detail it in the book. But yeah, like, and that's what I said earlier about this difference between refugees and economic migrants. I mean, it's illegal. There's a legal difference there. And that one is entitled to international protection if they can reach a country where they can claim it in. Whereas like Joseph, he could get to Europe and he probably wouldn't get it, you know. But at the same stage, yeah, it's it's difficult to be in. To be in like a country where you don't have a social security net, you don't have, you know, you have extreme poverty, you have nepotism. Yeah, it's hard.
3: And Sally, one of the questions that has come in for you is, aside from Europe, uh, which we've discussed, what do you think other countries' responsibilities should be in this crisis?
0: I mean, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a crisis, except for that, like you said, 87% of refugees are sheltered in developing countries. So I guess for a lot of them, it is a crisis. But um, I think that, you know, legal paths to safety are very important. And that's not just through refugee resettlement, which is important, but that's offering scholarships, offering, you know, job opportunities, different ways that people can find to, um, access those opportunities, basically, because the reality is that we're all just kind of where we're born. It where we're born is chance, and then some of us have extreme privileges, and and some people have none. And it's hard to understand that if you're born into a rich country, but actually the difference is huge. And then yeah, I mean I don't know. It. Like the the broader issue is obviously inequality as well as well as you know stopping wars and dictatorships. But, but yeah, more empathy. I mean, for me, I, wa- I just wanted to document the consequences of this policy. I want people to be aware of what's happening. But I think that, of course, we can all be more empathetic.
3: In terms of for other, you know, for countries, um, for other countries, you know, what is the one thing you would like for them and their people to feel after they read your book and after you're reporting.
0: I guess I'm hoping that both people are more empathetic, but also there are questions around accountability and justice. And I detail those in the book as well. I don't know if they're going to come to anything, but I know that, you know, there's a lot that has gone wrong that actually there should also probably be accountability for. So just finally,
3: Sally... In your author's note, you write that whenever you speak in public, members of the audience, they want to know how all of this reporting has affected your mental health, your well-being. And I know you're sometimes reluctant, but will you share with our audience how this has been for you?
0: Yeah, I mean, I write in the author's notes, that basically i always get asked that and i think that there's a uncomfortableness in terms of reporting on this type of topic that people are more uh interested in focusing particularly on like a white person like a white individual rather than looking at the broader issues and that's why that question makes me quite uncomfortable is that actually everybody should be engaging with this topic it shouldn't be a way of shirking responsibility or shirking being aware of it um, and I write that in the book, like how, mu- how often do people read of, for example, a Mediterranean drowning and then just kind of close the tab or turn away? I think that everyone should be paying attention. In terms of my reporting, I mean, I detail in the book as well, like I faced death threats, I was under criminal investigation, like I've been very scared for a lot of this period of time. But yeah, I still don't think the focus should be on me because that if more people were doing this type of work, which is what we need, then, you know, it would be better. Thank you very much, Sally Hayden, for a fascinating
3: conversation. Your book actually reminds me of a quote from the former publisher of The Washington Post, Philip Graham, who said, Journalism is the first rough draft of history. I encourage all of our viewers and listeners to pick up her new book, which is out today. It's My Fourth Time We Drowned seeking refuge on the world's deadliest migration route. Sally is donating a portion of the proceeds from the sales to refugee supporting initiatives. And thank you all for joining us. I'm Linda Yu, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket.